0: Hi. My name is Julie. If I haven't met you before, I am one of the Immerse interns on our NYA team. It is a good gift to be here with you tonight. Um, so I grew up with siblings, as many of you probably did. Um, I have two sisters, one younger and one older. And as any sibling knows, unless you're the youngest, in which case you'll probably disagree with me, which is typical of youngest, the youngest always gets it the easiest. Amen? Yeah. Any middle children? Yeah. They get it the easiest. The rules are always relaxed for them, but by the time it actually gets to them, there's hardly any rules at all. They get to do what they want, when they want. At least that was my experience. In my family, my parents had a rule that us girls, we weren't allowed to get our ears pierced until middle school. Why middle school? I don't know. They probably didn't even know, but that was their rule. My little sister, she got to get her ears pierced in elementary school. I had to take piano lessons for 15 years. Didn't love it, always wanted to quit. My little sister got to quit after five years, 10 years earlier. I always wanted a moped, like a Vespa, one of those ones that they ride in Italy where it's like an electronic or electric scooter that you actually sit on, you know what I'm talking about? No, my parents said, too dangerous, you'll be killed. No, that's a hard no. Guess who got one? My younger sister. And she got to drive it around all throughout high school looking what I thought was pretty cool on her Vespa. And then, I also lived with a flip phone until grade 10, and until when I could form my own. And my sister, she got a smartphone in grade nine so that she could be safe on her moped. The injustice of it all. The list could go on and on and on. I'm not sorry about, sorry about any of it, as you can tell, but sometimes it felt like my parents were more gracious and more merciful and just overall more chill with my younger sister why. And yet if you asked my older sister, she'd probably say the same thing about me. She'd say they were so lenient, you didn't have any rules, and it kind of it all goes on and on. Because the point is that it's all about perspective. Cuz my parents would probably say, "Well, we loved you all and we tried to treat you equally." But it's all about perspective cuz mercy was given and mercy was received, and these feelings, it feels like it's not fair. And she doesn't deserve what she was given. It's all perspective. And that's a little bit what we're going to read in Jonah tonight. As we finish off Jonah 4, we're going to finish off the book together. And that's a little of what we'll see in Jonah. All perspective eventually converges into this one fact. All the different perspectives show that God is more merciful than me. God is more merciful than me. That's going to be our big idea tonight. God is more merciful than me. And at first glance, you might be like, well, yeah, obviously. Aren't you a Christian? You should know this by now. But what about... What about when it doesn't feel like his ways are always merciful? What about when it feels like he's more merciful to the younger sibling? What about when he's not as merciful to our standards? Is he really all that merciful? And I think that's what Jonah's struggle is in this text tonight, in Jonah 4. God is merciful, and Jonah, he's not a fan. So we're gonna look at this in two ways, two points. Our first one is gonna be the controversy of mercy. See what I did there? Controversy of mercy. And the second point is going to be that his mercy is good news. So let's start with the first one, the controversy of mercy. We're going to turn in your Bibles with me, um, and we're going to read the first part of Jonah 4. Uh, So if you know, Jonah's kind of right smack in the middle of all the minor prophets, have your Bibles, grab them and read with me. So Jonah 4 verse 1 says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, We'll pause there for a moment. So we meet Jonah in verse one of chapter four, and he's angry, why? Why is this man so mad? What just happened? Let's look back in the chapter. So as we, if you remember, if you've been here for the last few NYAs, we've gone through the whole book of Jonah. We started off in Jonah one where the Lord calls Jonah, his messenger, his prophet. He says, I have a message for you to deliver to a foreign evil nation. And Jonah literally runs the opposite direction. He jumps on a ship, he's like, nope, And he is on the ship running as fast away, as fast as he can, as far away as he can. There's a storm. There's a big storm. Eventually, Jonah's thrown overboard. And in that instant, when he is thrown overboard, the storm ceases. The sailors, the mariners that were on the boat with him, in that moment, they realize that God is God. He's the power over storms. And they repent in that moment. And then a big fish enters the scene, the big fish that we probably all have heard about since we were little enters the scene, swallows Jonah up, and he is alive in the fish for three days and three nights. Enter chapter two. We get this insight into the belly of a fish and into Jonah's prayer life. He's crying out to God. He's asking for salvation. He's saying, salvation belongs to the Lord. Lord, save me. And eventually, the Lord responds, and he saves Jonah. The fish vomits him up onto land, and he is on dry land once again. So in chapter three, the last time we were here at NYA, This is the important one. This is why he's angry this time. The message that he was originally supposed to bring, saying, Nineveh, you will be destroyed if you do not repent. He gets a second chance, and he brings this message to the people of Nineveh. And what does Nineveh do? Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria at the time. And the Ninevites, all the way from the king down to the peasant, they put on these clothes of mourning as they mourn their sin. They realize that they are sinners before God, and they need to repent. The whole city repents and at the end of the chapter of chapter 3 in verse 10 God saw that the Ninevites repented and he relented and that, that is the fact of why Jonah is so angry that's why he's mad and just as he did in the belly of the fish he prays to the Lord again but this time it's a little bit different, he's not crying out to be saved this time he is telling the Lord what he really thinks, listen up God he says, Lord, didn't I tell you this when I was still at home? I knew this was going to happen. This is why I ran away. I did not want to deliver this message because I knew that you would save those people. I knew that's what you would do, and I didn't want it to be true. Not for them. Now remember, God, Jonah has just seen God be merciful to pagan mariners in the first chapter. He's himself has experienced mercy through being saved by a fish and then actually saved from the fish. And then he's seen a whole city experience God's mercy. But that last one, the salvation of a whole city. As a messenger of God, Jonah doesn't say praise. I'm so glad that's the way that you are, God. Good for you. He says, no. He says, how could you? How could you save them? How could you be so consistent with your character that you are merciful even to them? You see, it wasn't that Jonah didn't know who God was. He clearly recounts the characteristics characteristics of God He reads from, or he quotes, Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, which would be familiar to all the Jewish readers at the time. This is a moment in time where God reveals himself to another one of his messengers, to Moses, who's the leader of God's people earlier on in the story of Israel. And God actually passes before Moses. He hides him in a rock, and he passes before him, and he announces to Moses, this is who I am. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children, on the children's children, to the third and the fourth generation. So that's what Jonah is quoting, a well-known passage to the Jews at the time. So he's saying, this is who you are, God. I know who you are. I know scripture. I've read it. I know how you've revealed yourself, but I just don't like it. I just don't like it when it's true for them. This God, he was their God. He was Israelite's God. He was not the God of the Ninevites. And yet God is now revealing himself as all these things, all these attributes we just read, and more to them, to those Ninevites. I want to take a little rabbit trail for a minute because I think there's something important for us here before we continue on in the story. Let's ask ourselves, do we know God's character like Jonah did? Now, he used God's character. He remembered who he was, and he actually held God to it. He said, This is who I know you are, and I don't actually like it. But do we know God's character enough to hold him to it or to even wrestle with it? Do we remember and remind ourselves of who he has said he is, how he's shown up in our lives or the lives of friends or family that we know? Do you know your heavenly father like you know your earthly father? Say, if I were to ask you, describe your dad. Who is your dad? You might say his hair color, how tall he is, how old he is. And I'd say, no, but like, who is he? Like, who is your dad to you? If you went on to just say his job and his shoe size and his date of birth and just name all these facts about him, I'd wonder if you really knew your dad, because that's not really what makes up the essence of who your dad is, his shoe size and his date of birth. In the same way, how often are the things that come to our mind when we think about who God is, is it a very short list? Is it that he's generally good? He created a bunch of stuff. He saved us from our sins. He lives in heaven. The end. Or maybe you know lots of stuff. Maybe the list is longer, and you can say that he is steadfast in love. You mentally assert that he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, quick to forgive, but then our prayer lives don't really reflect any of that knowledge. We approach him like he's always just a little bit angry or disappointed with us. We don't really love spending time with him because his love really isn't all that abundant. Or you're merciful and gracious to them, but what I've done, if you knew what I've done, it's too much, I can't draw near. Let Jonah's prayer life, if nothing else, both in the belly of the fish and now and he's angry with God, may it at least be an encouragement for us to be honest in our prayer to God, even in our anger and always in our need. May we be honest with God. Okay, back from our rabbit trail to Jonah. Remember the angry dude that we just met? He knows who God is, and he can't believe that God would be merciful to them, to the Ninevites. And he didn't just list mercy, remember. He's also saying he's gracious, which is really just kind of the other side or the flip side of the coin to mercy. So if mercy is not getting what you deserve, grace is receiving what you don't deserve. See how they work together? Two sides of the coin. And everything else, his slowness to anger, his abundant and steadfast love, the way that he relents in Jonah, it all flows out of his mercy. He doesn't give the pagan mariners what they deserve. He doesn't give his disobedient prophet what they deserve, what he deserves, and he doesn't give Nineveh what they deserve. Instead, God has mercy. And Jonah, he would rather die than live in a world where this is true of God, where God relents, where God is merciful to them, his enemies. And why were they his enemies? It's a good question. Well, first, they're not God's people. So anyone kind of out there, they weren't in the inner circle. It's kind of us, Israel, and them, the world, them, Assyria. They're political enemies. Nineveh, being the capital city of Assyria, was a political enemy of Israel. They weren't in cahoots with one another. And not too many years later, Assyria would actually be used to carry, Isra- excuse me, to carry Israel off captive. So they weren't friends. They were ruthless as we learned a couple of weeks ago, lip-cutting off, skinned their captives, killed the children, rape the women, kind of is enemies of Israel. They were brutal, brutal people. That's who God saved in response to their repentance. Now, Jonah didn't mind God's compassion when he, when he was inside the fish, and he wasn't even upset about the way God responded to the mariners, but these people, this was inconceivable. Jonah didn't want to live in a world where this was true of his God. Now, before we point the finger at Jonah, or think he was a bit much, or he's kind of the worst. Let's put it in our context for a minute. Pretend that you woke up tomorrow morning, and you turned the news on, and you saw that Putin had turned, and Moscow, the whole city, had repented. The whole Russian army. Warfare was ceased. What'd you think? Or maybe the name Jeffrey Dahmer sounds familiar to you. I didn't really know who he was before I saw his name pop up on Netflix. I haven't watched the show because I'd probably never sleep again, but If you haven't heard the name, Jeffrey Dahmer was a serial killer and a cannibal. He killed 17 young men and ate them. Horrible, awful. He was put in prison. Seven months before he was killed in a prison attack, he professed faith in Jesus Christ, and he was baptized. That reaction right there, that little queasy, oh, him? That's Jonah's reaction. Did Jeffrey Dahmer really deserve that mercy if he was truly saved? This is the controversy of mercy. Are you willing to live in a world where someone like Jeffrey Dahmer is granted salvation in spite of the heinous crimes that he's committed? Where he has no time to counter all of that evil with at least some good in the world? Are you willing to spend eternity with him? Jonah neither, at least not yet. And maybe we don't personally know any Jeffrey Dahmers or Ninevites. I know I don't. But what about someone we perceive as a threat, like Jonah? How often do we perceive someone as a threat and then not act with compassion and mercy? How about a threat to our reputation? If I talk to her, what will it do to my reputation? If I'm not actually with my friends that are they sound like they're laughing over there, if I'm not with them, what will that do to my reputation? A threat to our comfort. Practically or eternally. Practically, it's easier to sit on the couch and let your roommate or your spouse or your mom unload the dishwasher. And eternally, it's really risky and uncomfortable to have those gospel conversations that might actually lead to someone being saved. I might look dumb. I might break up the surface-level conversations that we're quite comfy in. Or what about a threat to my beliefs? So say on social media, you see someone that seems to really hate Christians or Christian beliefs, and they're really outspoken about it. Do I respond with similar anti-God language in an effort to belittle them and bring them down to size? Do I draw permanent lines in the sand where it is now you or them and us and me? Are Those permanent lines there. Like many of us, Jonah had this theological understanding, this theological argument of who God was and who he says he is. He knows those things. He knows the truth. But his heart, it was not in agreement with that. He did not have the same heart toward Nineveh. He wanted threats dealt with in the way that he saw fit. He knew who God was, but when it was tested, he couldn't deal with it. He didn't like it. And this, at the heart of it, is the controversy of mercy, that God is more merciful than me, and I don't like it. Let's keep reading to watch the controversy unfold. So in verse 4, the last bit that we read there, God asks Jonah and says, do you do well to be angry? Basically saying, do you have a right to be angry? So as we keep reading, pick up in verse 5. So Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, but then when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, so it withered. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. So let's unpack it. What just happened? In verse 4, Jonah has just told the Lord he wants to die. And the Lord asks him, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah leaves the city, doesn't seem to respond, leaves the city. He maybe wants to watch. Is God really going to have mercy or maybe he'll change his mind and the whole city will get poof, blown up. That would be good for us. He leaves the city. This unhappy camper, he makes a booth or a tent. It's kind of like a temporary dwelling place. And where he was at this time, it's kind of east of the Arabian desert. So it's a really hot place. It's like modern day northern Iraq. So he makes himself a tent for comfort in the heat of the day. And God adds to it by appointing a plant to grow quickly and add some shade. I'm a sun-dweller myself, but maybe Jonah was a gender and didn't want to be in the sun. Either way, Nineveh is located in an area of the world that's probably like 30 to 40 degrees, so it is hot, hot, hot. And then the text tells us that he is soaked about this plant. He probably settled right in. I'm pretty comfy right now. It might have been a castor oil plant, commentators think. Those are plants that grow up really, really fast. But regardless of what kind of plant it was, the point was the appointer. Who appointed it? Just like the storm, just like like the lots cast by the sailors, just like the big fish, God is sovereignly in and over the details of this story. This time, he's here to teach the messenger a lesson. So the next day, God continues appointing and sends a worm to eat the plant. And our ginger shade dweller, all of a sudden, he is upset. He's exposed to the elements, no plant, he's out in the sun, and he is miserable. And then to top it all off, God appoints one more thing. An east wind, which to us, it maybe doesn't sound all that significant. But if you have wind blowing from the desert to where Jonah is, these winds would be like a scorching furnace. It could increase the temperature by 20 degrees and it would just feel like someone's sitting there with a blow dryer pointed at your face. Terrible when you're already hot. And so what does our prophet do? He has to die again. He's so hot and so miserable that he is ready to die. He's not just ready to die, we learn, though. He's also angry. So God perceives his prophet is angry, and he asks him again, Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the plant? And look at Jonah's response. No ifs and buts or maybes. He's 110% sure that he's justified in being angry about this plant. This plant was his shade, his comfort, his joy. Without this plant, life is not worth living. His comfort was his life. No comfort, no life. So then what does God say the object lesson is here? What was the point of all this? Well, he basically says to Jonah, Jonah, let's analyze this anger of yours. Your beloved plant has died, and you're mad about it. But what did it really mean to you anyways? Your attachment, it really couldn't have gone that deep. It was literally here for one day. Is that genuine love for something that was just here for one day and gone the next? Or just your own interest that made you care so much about this little plant? You never had the devotion of a gardener. You didn't water it. You didn't plant it. If you feel as bad as you do, how do you expect the gardener feels? Who tended a plant, he watched it grow, he watered it, he took care of it. This, this is how I feel about Nineveh, about the people of Nineveh, only so much more. All these people, all this livestock, I made them and I have cherished them for years. Nineveh has cost me, the gardener, no end of effort and it means the world to me. Your pain is nothing compared to mine when I think about their destruction. This, this right here, this is the father's heart. This is his tender mercy and kind compassion for people. And this is the father's heart for Jonah, this dramatic, angry prophet who's more upset over his plant dying than 120,000 people dying. God pursues Jonah as he pursues the Ninevites, relentlessly, persistently, sovereignly, mercifully, till all opposition fails. And then just like that, the the book ends. Abruptly, the curtain falls, the story's over. And we're left with this dramatic side-by-side of Jonah and God. Jonah, this messenger of God, quick to anger, who knew God's character and he wanted it only for himself. And then God, this merciful creator, slow to anger, consistent through and through to all people. Being in this passage for the last few weeks, it's been hard for me. It's been hard because it's been convicting, and conviction is never comfortable. It's always this mirror for our hearts, but it always has a way of showing us God's mercy. I have someone in my life that's close to me who has been through hard things and has gone on to inflict even harder things on the people around them. We have been wronged, manipulated, hated, blind. The last few years have been this yo-yo, this up and down of secrets and pain and hard relationship. And it has been so painful. And the more I've been sitting in this chapter of Jonah 4, the more I'm realizing that I don't want to forgive this person. Like Jonah, I don't want them to receive God's mercy because I don't actually think they deserve it. It would feel unfair for them to be redeemed after all the hurt that they have caused. I want them to feel some of the pain that they have inflicted. And I don't just want them to not enjoy God's mercy. I want them to live in the bed that they have made, and I want it to suck at least a little bit. I want it to be uncomfortable and ugly because that's what they deserve, isn't it? That's my heart, if I'm honest. But the heart of God seen in this passage is one of mercy, not giving people what they deserve and grace, giving people what they don't deserve. Nineveh didn't receive the punishment they deserved. Instead, they received salvation and life itself. So where does that leave me? Where does that leave us? If God is more merciful than me, that's the comfortable, uncomfortable controversy. And perhaps for you, it's not someone close to you like me, but maybe it's a past abuser, someone who has genuinely and horribly wronged you. What is your heart towards them? Do they deserve to prosper now? Or an eternity with God? Do they deserve mercy? Or maybe it's someone who bullied you all the way back in elementary school. Or maybe spoke words over you in high school that were really ugly, and you still hear them repeating over and over in your head. If you saw them at the grocery store, would you go down the next aisle? Do you try and avoid them? What is your heart towards them? Do they deserve mercy? Or maybe it's an ex-girlfriend or a past friend, someone that has driven a knife into you and twisted a little bit. There's been a lot of pain there. Your relationship is forever fractured and just their name brings these waves of anger and pain and all these mixed emotions. You hope that overall their life sucks a little bit, they don't have any friends, their dog dies, and maybe they even get fired. Whatever it is, what is your heart towards them? Do they deserve mercy? Or maybe it's something as seemingly insignificant as someone that blindly pulls in front of you as you're driving, no indicator, no blinker, no nothing, and then no sign of regret or apology or a wave. You know that feeling? and you kind of sort of really hope that there's a small fender bender in their future just to teach them the havoc that they've wreaked behind. Do they deserve mercy, though? Does that person, does that stranger deserve mercy? Because the reality is, the one that I forget, the one that Jonah forgot, none of us deserve his mercy. Before God, we are all Ninevites. Every last one of us. No sin is too small that will banish us from the presence of God forever. Sin is sin, and a holy God cannot be in the presence of sin. That's the bad news, that none of us have earned his mercy. But then for the good news. Think of something. What or who do you treasure the most? What would you take to the desert island, or what would you save in a fire? What do you value the most? What would you give up all your money for? Okay, now times that by one billion trillion. Not even a number. God himself, he gave his only son. His only son, the one whom he loved, whom he treasured above all else. And for the first time in history, this God-man came to earth. He lived a sinless, perfect life. All mercy, no anger. And eventually he was killed in one of the most heinous ways that people can be killed on a cross. And in that moment, it wasn't just suffering on the cross. But in that moment, he took all of our sin, all of our sin that we have ever done, that we are currently committing, and that we will ever do in the future. All of it nailed to the cross with him. But that's not all the good news because if it was just sin given to him, that would just make us neutral. But it gets better. He gave his perfect life, his perfect record, all the perfect that he had lived, and he gave it to us so that when the Father looks at us, looks at his kids, he sees the one he loves. He sees Jesus. That is good news. If this sounds like good news, it's the best news, and it's a free invite for all. No one's left out. Trust in Jesus as the only Savior from all of your sin, and he will forever be your Savior without sin. In this, the greatest act of mercy to ever fall upon our ears for our hearts ever to receive, we get to see the Father's heart for us. Because the thing about mercy is it's not really about the recipient. It's actually about the giver. And our Father, he is a good gift giver. He always gets it right at Christmas. He's a good Father. It's an undeserved gift of good news. So that leads us to our second point, that his mercy is good news. So how? How is it good news that he is merciful to our worst enemy and to the driver in front of us? Maybe they're the same person. How is it good news that he is merciful to those who don't deserve it? how is it good news that he's more merciful than us? Well, it means that he is merciful to those who don't deserve it, and that is good news. So for Jonah, that was the best news, that despite his resistance, despite his disobedience, his short memory of rescue, God was merciful to Jonah. He pursued him on his runaway boat. He provided a fish to save him from drowning. He saved him from inside said fish. He gave him a second chance to actually take that message. He heard his prayers. He added to his comfort. He patiently taught him a lesson. God had mercy on this prophet. Jonah had come to believe that he deserved God's mercy a little bit over over and above the Ninevites. And God patiently but persistently showed him that no one deserves my mercy. So back up for a minute. Assuming that Jonah wrote Jonah, um, which is kind of weird because he wrote it in the third person, but it's his story, and commentators have no reason to say he wouldn't have written it. we do well to ask why. Why would this man write this record of his disobedience, his second chances, and the salvation of Nineveh? It's kind of embarrassing for him. Why did he write this? So he was a real person, after all. He walked the earth, he got haircuts, he ate dinner, he probably got a fish tattoo and never went on a boat again after these escapades. He was a real person. Person, so why would he write down his story for Israel to read, for us to read? Now, he was meant to be a prophet for Israel, but so far we've only heard him bringing messages to Assyria, another nation. Well, it's because that on the surface this book is a message for Nineveh, and there's a problematic prophet in the middle, but it's also a prophetic record of God's character, the nature of sin, and Israel's need for a savior. Because you see, the the book of Jonah, it's so much more than just a story of a man and a fish. God's chosen people, Israel, they had also come to believe that they deserved God's mercy. The good news, though, is that even though they didn't deserve it, he gave it anyways, over and over and over again. So both Jonah and Israel had forgotten that they deserved, didn't deserve God's mercy. They'd grown familiar with it. They assumed that it was just a given, that it will always be here. During Jonah's time, the nation of Israel, it was a good time for the nation of Israel. They were wealthy, they were prosperous, they were comfy, there was no battles necessarily going on. They looked really good from the outside. It was the place to be. But on the inside, they were rotting. They still worshiped God, they still worshiped Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, but they had added all these other gods onto it. Their hearts were rotting. They extorted one another. They took advantage of the weaker ones, the widows, the orphans, not taking care of it all. They cheated on their taxes, all the things. The rich got richer, the poor got poorer. It was a hot mess. And yet, the Lord didn't enact full justice at the time, but he patiently bore with his people. Because remember, they didn't deserve his mercy. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 8 through 6, God talks about how he has chosen Israel. Listen to the words here. So he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, you Israel. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people, you were the most insignificant. But it is actually because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. And redeemed you. Did you catch that? There is nothing desirable, significant, praiseworthy about Israel. God chose Israel to be his people, his children, his most prized and treasured possession because he loved them and because he's a God who sticks to his word. It was because of him. They had done nothing, nor could they ever do anything to earn God's mercy. So the message from God to his people Israel was this. You're meant to be a blessing. Uh, You're meant to be a blessing for all nations because I love all people and all nations, not just you. You're special, but that doesn't mean I don't love the other nations. I do. You're meant to proclaim my salvation into the world and invite the strangers in. You're full of sin. So is Nineveh. But this foreign Gentile nation has repented and turned to me after one messenger. One. How many messengers have I sent you, Israel? And you still have not repented my character is consistent, not just to you, but to all the nations. You have done nothing to earn my blessing. You do not deserve my mercy, and yet I am more merciful than you ever imagined. I am more merciful than you. That was God's message through Jonah to the people of Israel, and that's the same message for us now. Because in a myriad of little ways, we all have this underlying belief that we deserve God's mercy. Like Israel, we so often forget that we don't deserve an ounce. Romans 3 says that for there is no distinction, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But also like Israel, the good news of mercy, it meets us in the middle of it all. A little later on in Romans 5 verse 8, he says, but God chose his love for us in that while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Do you catch that? We were his enemies, and that's when he had mercy on us. Not when we cleaned ourselves up, not when we'd gotten rid of all our sin, not when we read our Bibles for an hour each day or prayed for twice that, not even when we were nice to our enemies. No, while we were as much of an enemy to God as Nineveh was, that's when God saved us. That's more than we can say for our greatest expressions of mercy. I close with a quote by Dane Ortland in his new book called *Is Hell Real*. He puts it this way, that helps me understand a little of the mercy of God. The world tends to believe that heaven is for the good and hell for the bad. That's not the teaching of the Bible. The Bible teaches not that heaven is for the good and hell for the bad, but heaven for the penitent and hell for the impenitent, however good or bad anyone has been. I don't think it's just the world that believes that. I think we believe that. But the good news is that heaven is for sinners who repent and receive mercy, and hell is for those who refuse it. So ultimately, I think the lesson... Of Jonah, for each of us to know with confidence, is that he is more merciful than us. He's more merciful than you. He's more merciful than me. He is more merciful than who we can ever hope to be, and that is good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your mercy, that you have given to us grace that we have received, but we don't deserve, and you have withheld what we do deserve. You've given it to Jesus instead. Lord, it's hard to understand. It's hard to wrap our minds around, and yet it is something that is so praiseworthy that we can actually sit here before you cleansed because when you see us, you see your son Jesus, who you love. Lord, may you show us ways that we have not been merciful. May you show us things that we are harboring in our hearts where we are far from you. May you show us who to ask forgiveness from or who to extend forgiveness from. And may you enable us by the power of the Holy Spirit to do that because of the mercy that you have already shown us, Lord. We love you and we want to love you more. Amen.